Hello, today is January 16th, 2022. I'm Justin E.H. Smith, and this is the audio version of today's Substack essay, Ghost Photography. Ghost Photography starts with the epigram. I would rather photograph an idea than an object and a dream rather than an idea. Man Ray. Part 1. Nobody wants to hear anyone else's dreams, and nobody wants to see anyone else's photo albums. A rare few good souls might express interest at first, but will almost certainly find their attention flagging long before the sharer is finished. As to dreams, the claim can be measured each time a person takes to social media to divulge the surreal sequence from which they've just awoken. I've been keeping track, and have observed that consistently and without exception, they get fewer likes for their dreams than when telling stories from their waking life, or telling jokes, or lies. You can see in that mysterious way social media telegraphically transmits distant affects, that the dream-sharers regret their decision, resolve never to do it again, only to find, the next time they wake up from naked bumper cars with their camp counselors from childhood, that they just can't help themselves, and the cycle of oversharing and regret begins again. As to family photos, let us be honest. They all look the same. Not only that, they look like something we as outsiders aren't supposed to see, and that probably should never have been preserved in the first place. Often they come across as poignant testimonia of superfluous lives, of frightened and clueless creatures caught in a brief flash of inexplicable consciousness before slipping back out again. Thus does Cornelius Sutri meditate in the 1979 Cormac McCarthy novel that bears its protagonist's name on the photo album his aunt has insisted on showing him, somewhere near Knoxville, Tennessee, sometime around 1952. The old musty album with its foxed and crumbling paper seemed to breathe a reek of the vault turning up one by one these dead faces with their wan and loveless gaze out toward the spinning world, masks of incertitude before the cold glass eye of the camera, or recoiling before this celluloid immortality of faces simply staggered into gaga by the sheer velocity of time. Old distaff kin coughed up out of the vortex, cracked and mackled and a bit redundant, the landscapes, old backdrops, redundant too, recurring unchanged as if they inhabited another medium than the dry pilgrims shored up on them. Blind moil in the earth's nap cast up in an eye blink between becoming and done. I am, I am, an artifact of prior races. Can photography be anything more than this? It can try, or at least your aunt can try to be more upbeat about it. This here's Roy's baby picture, she says. 
we are not told who Roy is. And what Sut sees is this. Sailor-suited poppet of Fiend's caricature of old childhoods, a gross cartoon. Photography is supposed to commemorate a person after death, to keep them alive in some sense. What it ends up doing, Sutri seems to feel, is to kill them at each, in, at each instant. Roy could have lived to a ripe old age, for all we know. But the obscenity of the baby picture is that it comes to appear, as it recedes into the past, as a picture of a dead baby. Not, of course, in the sense that Roy was dead at the moment the picture was taken but in the sense that celluloid immortality is at the same time a heavy reminder that that's the only kind anyone is ever going to get. If baby Roy is not dead, after all, then where is he? Section 2. In The Work of the Dead, A Cultural History of Mortal Remains, published in 2015, Thomas Lecoeur has compellingly written about the role of new medical technologies of embalming that emerged out of the Civil War in shaping our customs of mourning and commemorating the dead. Some of these customs today seem morbid and outdated. Others are still with us, though much depends on one's social class and geography. In 2014, an article in the New York Times brought a small taste of Southern Gothic to the generally body-averse world of your typical Times reader. It described the spectacular funerary customs, familiar to Lacour and described by him with affecting sympathy, of at least some black Americans in New Orleans and other places along the Gulf, which in effect include the deceased person, or at least their physical remains, as a guest of honor at their own wake. Some years before the chemicals that made this possible were beginning to circulate in the southern United States, in England, the future celebrity ghoul, Jeremy Bentham, who died in 1834, would proclaim in his self-explanatorily titled pamphlet, auto-icon, or farther uses of the dead to the living, undated, that thanks to advances in medical technology, soon statues will no longer be necessary, since every man will be his own monument, an improvement, Bentham thinks, since identity is preferable to similarity. It is significant that the funerary transformations that Lecoeur describes take place over the course of the same century that witnesses the birth and expansion of photographic technology, which, as I've been suggesting, pretends to give us a similarity of a person, even if we are often left with the uncanny impression, when looking at an old photo, that we are in the presence of an identity, coughed up out of the vortex when it should be napping along with the earth. The overlapping function of photographic and funerary rites is made explicit in Sutri when the hero visits a woman identified in some commentary over-precisely as a Geechee witch. McCarthy himself almost never tells us openly who a person is or what their place in the world is. 
show-don't-tell is overused advice for hack writers, but if that is taken to mean take Sutri as a model of storytelling, then it's pretty hard to reject it. So of this Geechee witch, we may at least say that she is a practitioner of a Tennessean variant of the broad complex of traditional medicine, divination, and conjuration found throughout the African diaspora in the Americas. In the woman's narrow, cluttered hallway, Sutri studies an old family picture featuring, quote, old patriarchs and men and women and small children peering out, and in the center seated and shawled what appeared to be a scorched rhesus monkey. Parenthetical remark. By my count, there are eight comparisons of black people in the novel to non-human primates, and four of white people. Yes, it shocks me too, and while part of an explanation may be that the novel is a long, delirious parade of grotesques and human beings are compared not just to monkeys, but to all conceivable lower taxa as well, still, the shock remains. Of course, one reads this novel in order to be shocked, and it seems like a strange request of a novelist to say, shock me, but only within my comfort zone. Still again, the shock remains. To riff on a point Caleb Crane made in a different context, one wants to be challenged, one doesn't want to be a pushover. The passage continues, quote, She was standing across the room and the light was poor and she could not have rightly known which photograph among the many he was looking at, and yet she said, She was born in 17 and 87. Who is she? My grandmama. She was 102 when she died. She looks almost that old in the picture. She's dead in the picture. End of quote. There's a whole genre of jokes and stories drawing on the humor potential of showing up at your own funeral. But whether we see this as paradoxical or not has much to do with our cultural representations, which is to say our folk metaphysics, as concerns the dead, particularly the recently dead, in their relationship to us. The photograph of the dead woman is remarkable for being both an identity and a similarity at once, in Bentham's sense, both an auto-icon and a photographic commemoration of the person she was. Most of us ignore Bentham's ad admonition and settle for similarity, fondling photographs of the dead, imposing them on our nephews, in the Balkans, there's a whole industry active around the peripheries of cemeteries that will take old photos, typically of married couples in their youth, and turn them into glass or perhaps clear plastic appendages that may be affixed to tombstones. We want the similarity, yet the unease the photography induces in many of us, even when our judgments are not as extreme as Sutri's, suggests that the buffer of security between this and identity is ever at risk of falling. Section 3. The lighthearted spirit that was often brought to early studio and portrait photography can seem almost a nervous compensation for the grim operation that was always underway. 
the production of a trace of a person that would outlive its living subject. The special relationship between photography and death, the way photography cheats death, even though death must not be cheated, also makes some particularly sensitive people wary of photographic portraiture, and in particular makes them resent the playful spirit other people, those who live in the moment, are able to bring to it. Not surprisingly, Proust is among those sensitive people. So now we are on the fourth of my seven promised essays on the seven volumes of A la recherche du temps perdu. In Sodom et Gomorrah, when he finds himself still traumatized by the loss of his grandmother, upon returning to Cambrai and staying in the hotel where she used to take him, he recalls the unpleasant scene in which his friend Robert de Saint-Loup, a perpetual dilettante, and therefore, not surprisingly, a photography hobbyist, proposes to take the grandmother's picture as a gesture of kindness to his friend. Our narrator is, of course, sullen and can't hide it. I quote, That day when Saint-Loup had taken a photograph of my grandmother and when, having trouble concealing her almost ridiculous childishness in the coquetry with which she put on her wide-brimmed hat in the pleasant half-light, I slipped into mumbling some impatient and hurtful words that, as I sensed in the contraction of her face, reached her ears. Now that it was forever impossible to console her with a thousand kisses, it was me that these words tore to pieces. The playfulness we see in early photography, the coquetry in the costumes, even Nietzsche having a bit of fun with Paul Rey and Lou Salome with a whip, exists on a continuum with the explorations in spirit photography that are almost as old as the technology itself, and that were part and parcel of the many efforts in the late 19th century to communicate with the dead. It is a commonplace in the history of technology and media studies that the sudden appearance of technologies with the power literally to disembody voices, telephony and sound recording, and to capture virtual likenesses directly rather than through imitation, photography, stimulated a broad interest in the possibility of consciousness detached from a living human body. And that among the cultural expressions of this interest are the seances attended by the likes of William James, or the ghost photographs hawked by William H. Mumler, notably of Mary Todd Lincoln with the specter of her dead husband, until he, Mumler, was found guilty of larceny. In the genre in which Mumler worked, there's a gamut of moods and intentions, from the outright fraud that he practiced to the mere spooky fun preferred by many others. And indeed, soon enough, a subgenre emerged of attempts at somber, com somber commemoration of a lost loved one without any pretense of the actual presence of a ghost in the image. Two things strike me when I study ghost photographs from the 19th century. One is that these are an inevitable product of the new technology that even a straightforward hoaxer and larcenist is really just drawing out the innate essence of, the, of, the, of photographs of the living, an essence too sharply 
uh, discerned by Sutri and by Proust's narrator. All photography is ghost photography. But rather than simply registering a ghost that was anyway present, it's the act of freezing a human being's likeness in time that produces the ghost. The second thing that strikes me is that the question whether one believes in ghosts is historically contingent, or rather even more historically contingent than most other things. Since ghosts, as we understand them, are for the most part an artifact of the history of technology, in particular of the development of technologies since the mid-19th century that leave disembodied traces of people, traces that appear to preserve some of their soul or essence, even after they are gone from this world. Ghosts, as we understand them, are mostly just ancestors, forced to dwell on in our world through the technological production of trace likenesses that always seem to push across the boundary of identity. Section 4. Generally oblivious as I am to theory, I often end up saying things that devoted theory heads find naive or old hat. This is intentional. This is part of my method. One of the interesting consequences of this method is that I sometimes come around with tremendous delay to the realization that my own views converge, like the body morphologies of Antarctic penguins and Arctic auks, with those of people I imagined to dwell in very different intellectual regions. It took me about 15 years to realize that, on certain basic points, I may as well go ahead and call myself a Foucauldian. So why not acknowledge a debt, at least a tiny one, to Derrida too? This thought has come up for me recently as I've encountered, belatedly, through the work of Mark Fisher, the nebulous notion of hauntology and realized that I have, for a long time, mostly in this very space, been writing in a hauntological vein. I think the word itself is stupid. It works in French, where to haunt is hanté, and in English, but its untranslatability into other neighboring languages reminds us why it is always a bad idea to use homonymy as the basis of neologism as Derrida absolutely loved to do. For Fisher, hauntology is a mode of looking at culture, notably our own, uh, at a culture that is haunted by lost futures, that is to say, by all the ways the future one might once have expected to arrive is now lost to the past. When the present has given up on the future, Fisher writes, we must listen for the relics of the future in the unactivated potentials of the past. In this mode of listening, we open ourselves up to the experience of nostalgia, particularly regarding those fantasies we had about the future when it still seemed open and indeterminate to us, which is to say, in a more mundane key than Fisher would have wanted to strike, when we were younger. For those of my age, which is Mark Fisher's age, roughly, or the age he was when he died in 2017, 
we cannot help but find particularly haunting the cultural output of the 1980s. For example, pastel geometrical forms offered up as public art in shopping malls, now abandoned, though still standing as the true haunted houses of late capitalism, and that ironically have sometimes been known around Halloween to host pop-up haunted houses inside some otherwise vacant former hot topic at what must be an incredibly bargain rate. The past itself, as universal container of all past events, is already painful enough. When we see a photograph of ourself in it, standing at Sunrise Mall in Citrus Heights, California, between the C's Candies and the J.C. Penney's, pastel geometrical forms behind us, circa 1987, it's enough to make one feel like a dry pilgrim shored up on another bank of time than the one from which this strange vestige has reached us. I have always done my best to hide in photographs, to position myself behind the largest person in the group, to duck off towards the edge in the hope that I will be outside the lens's frame. I often come out as if half disappeared, not a political desaparecido, like Nikolai Yezhov and Stalin's other victims of the Soviet-style photographic retouche, but more like the McFly siblings, a metaphysical desaparecido, vanished by the paradoxes of time, even if, in my case, it's a self-vanishing in anticipation of paradoxes that I know will become apparent only later. The conceit of Back to the Future, like most time travel scenarios since H.G. Wells, is that temporal paradoxes only arise when we hubristically fiddle with time's arrow. But the unease that at least some of us feel with photographs suggests that even the standard model unidirectional flow of things is unthinkable, if you stop to think about it. Those trace likenesses of us from the past really ought to be impossible. Yet there they are. Section 5. The heaviness of looking at old photographs has to do with the fact that there is no easy separation between the universal frame and the individual sub subjects trapped within it, that we are not simply in the 1980s, but rather we turn out ourselves to have been rivulets of that decade's temporal flow. When I see photographs of my peer group lurking around Sunrise Mall, I am reminded that one of them was a sort of avatar or lesser incarnation of Peter Murphy from Bauhaus, another an apostasis of Martin Gore from Depeche Mode, another of Robert Smith from The Cure. There was a real spontaneous metaphysics that made this make sense without explicit affirmation. We were not so much individual subjects as we were congelations of certain spirits, which spread at least across the entire surface of the earth, were mostly concentrated in a few legendary places like London and Berlin, and that were made sensuous, mostly, through music. 
It is thus hard to look back at one's old self, not just because one had so much more hair back then or so much less gut, but because one's existence then, in retrospect, appears as a sort of channeling of the epoch itself. And to that extent, the person in the picture cannot be said to exist because the epoch is definitively over. And it is not only if one is consciously a member of a subculture, such as those that organize themselves around musical styles, that photographs from the past are inherently photographs of the dead. As Miranda Priestley wisely and astringently reflects in The Devil Wears Prada, we are, as concerns fashion in her case, though the point is in fact more general, all somewhere on the ladder of apostasies, whether we know it or not, and the normie shirt and Hagar slacks you got from pennies have the form they do because someone in the most exclusive houses of fashion made an, ins an inscrutable decision about something, and everything else trickled down from there. And so, too, with the poses we strike in photographs. I see myself in old photographs, and I see someone trying to be someone else, even if I can't remember who, even if I didn't know at the time. The choice, it's always seemed to me, when I'm caught in front of someone else's lens, is either to try to be someone else, or to try to duck out or hide, and so to be no one at all. I've generally opted for the latter strategy, except when I am caught off guard and staggered into Gaga. Section 6. One of the rare cases of a translation from, from the French that results in an improvement on the original might be Pierre Bourdieu's study of photography, un art moyen, which, when Englished, gives us photography, a middle-brow art, published in 1965. Like Miranda Priestley, the French sociologist is famously preoccupied with what we may call the filtration system, the way tastes and preferences get distributed differently in different social classes, with the lower classes inevitably valuing a distorted, cartoon-like version of what they take to be characteristic of the nobility. Almost nothing in Bourdieu's distinction of 1968 the culmination of his work in this vein, looks familiar to a 21st century American, or even to any of the French people I know. Before moving to Europe, I would have had no idea whether, say, A Pig's Feet in Aspic or Johann Strauss's Blue Danube is characteristic of upper or lower class tastes. In fact, as to the latter, I interpret its significance entirely through my experience of 2001 A Space Odyssey, which serves as a clear reminder that the social meaning of any artwork is never fixed once and for all. Even if Europeans still tend to associate Strauss waltzes with the high schmaltz of a televised André Rieux special, Kubrick's dislocation of the work from its native ground had by now likely forced its way into the minds of all 
but the most narrowly middle brow of European audiences as an alternative strand of the genetic heritage of the work's present meaning. So things change, and individual artworks we thought were dorky can become cool, and vice versa. It happens all the time. But the parameters of meaning for a given artistic medium seem relatively stable. And Bourdieu seems to have been largely right about photography. Bourdieu thinks it's middle brow in that as a hobby, it draws people to it who are trapped within bourgeois ideology. One way of glossing this overused phrase, which is in any case too materialist for what we're trying to get at here, might be to say that it attracts those who are able to think of themselves as free, irreducible subjects, happily passing from one age to another, always basically the same person in basically the same life, worthy of photographic documentation, if not for the sake of art, then just for the pleasure of one's own memories. This way of thinking of oneself contrasts with the sense that one is never fully oneself, but always channeling others and channeling spirits and always on one's way to being a ghost. Section seven. I have said that no one wants to hear anyone else's dreams and I will not share with you any of my own. I will, however, share the dream of Proust's narrator at the hotel at Combray, shortly after he has experienced the painful memory of the day he was rude to his grandmother as saint Lou took her picture and has realized that she is gone forever and he will never be able to seek her forgiveness. He falls asleep in the afternoon and his father appears. He asks his father to take him to see his grandmother. Quickly, quickly, her address, take me there. But he replied, it's just that I don't know if you will be able to see her. And then, you know, she is very weak, very weak. She's not herself anymore. I think it would be rather painful. But the young man keeps insisting. But tell me, you who know, it's not true that the dead are no longer alive. It's not true after all, in spite of what they say, because grandmother still exists. My father smiles sadly. Oh, very little, you know, very little. I think you would do better not to go there. I don't see what you could do there, and I don't think the guard would let you see her. End of quote. Do the dead still exist, if not quite in the same way we do? Looking at old photographs seems to tell us that they do. And this is also something we are told from time to time in dreams. That we hesitate, when invited, to look at other people's old photos or to listen to their dreams, might come more from a deep-seated shame and a sense of our unreadiness for the initiation into another person's deepest secrets that we are in fact being invited to undertake than any simple lack of interest. Yet one more respect in which the new economy of likes is entirely out of step with the value of life. <laughs>